Uh, welcome to the LSE for those of you who are uh, coming from outside and welcome to the LSE for those of you who are habitual residents and uh, attendees of these events. It gives me huge... Um, my name's Julia Black and I, um, I'm currently Strategic Director of Innovation, which is a new title for me, which is very exciting and means everything. So, but it's, uh, I was uh, heading up research um, and I'm now focusing on innovation, commercialization, entrepreneurship, student entrepreneurship, and, and ranges of activities of that nature. Um, and it gives me huge pleasure to welcome this evening a um, very dear colleague who will be known to many of you, I'm sure, Paul Dolan, um, who is a professor of... Um, so, so uh, he's a head no, of department well, in our psychological well and behavioural sciences department. <laughs> and can I cut? Can I just cut and redo that? In, so internally, we just call the Department of Psychological and Behavioural Sciences PBS. Uh, and given my given my stumbling over its title, you'll realise why. Um, and uh, Paul is an economist by training, but we won't hold that against him. Um, and he focuses now on behaviours and how the different choices that people make are affected by the context in which they make them. Um, and he's here to talk about his new book, uh, Happy Ever After. And also to, um, to talk with him is a, a good colleague from UCL, Tally Charrett, who's a professor of neuroscience at UCL. So Tally will be asking, interrogating Paul as well as you um, when we come to the sort of Q&A bit of the, the session. So just a little bit of housekeeping. The session is recorded, um, so it will be available on podcast. So just do bear that in mind when you're asking questions, uh, that it is being recorded. If you could keep your questions uh, as questions, that would be most welcome, uh, and quite short. That would be even more welcome. Um, and just the usual um, housekeeping, mobile phones on silent. The, um, you've got the hashtag there, hashtag LSE, happy ever after, uh, if you want to tweet and do all the sort of wonderful social media things that uh, we should all do, apparently, or not, depending on, obviously, the narrative that we want to live. Um, so I'm going to hand over now to, to Paul. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, Julian. Good, brilliant. Am I, my mic's on? I'm all good. You hear me? All good. Fantastic. Good evening, everybody. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Fantastic. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming. I'm going to talk about my new book. Uh, and I'm going to start, it's a book about narratives, so I'll start with a couple of stories. Um, hands up if you've uh, read Happiness by Design. Read it. Okay, hands up if you bought it. There must be a few, a, few, a few more hands. I don't really care about reading it, but I'm glad you bought it and read it. Uh, those that haven't, copies on sale outside. That's the, that's the first book plugged. If you haven't, why not? It's been out for years. Um, in Happiness by Design, I tell a story of a friend who worked for Media Land. You can kind of guess where that is. Since this is recorded, I won't give away the three letters that, of the organisation that she worked for. And... Uh, we went for dinner, and she spent the whole of the evening complaining about her boss, her colleagues, her commute. Everything about her daily experiences was categorically miserable. And as we were leaving dinner, she stood up and said, you know, I love working at Media Land. And that was a story that resonated so much. On the paperback of Happiness by Design, it's the book that will make you quit your job. And it's the only time in the entire book, I think, that I talk about jobs. And it alerted me to the... To the 
to the interesting notion that a lot of what we choose as individuals will be driven by the narratives and stories we tell about the things that we think should make us happy. Media Land was somewhere she always wanted to work, her parents were proud, her friends were jealous. How could she not be happy when she thought about whether it made her happy? In contrast, her experiences told her something quite different. And that's, that's stories that we tell about ourselves for ourselves. And then the second story I want to quickly tell you about is in the introduction to Happy Ever After is uh, an experience I had a couple of years ago, well, actually, when I just prior to starting the book, um, when I, was, uh, I gave a talk at the... I was on a panel uh, at the How the Light Gets In Festival in Hay, and uh, I was just walking across the fields after having done this panel discussion, and this guy about my age came and accosted me and said, uh, Professor Dolan, I like your first book. Uh, well, it's the only book at that stage. Um, and uh, I said, great, thanks. He said, but why do you have to play the working-class hero? I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, well, yeah, you do it in your book, and look at you doing it now. He's pointing me up and down, which was a bit bizarre, given that I was dressed as a chimney sweep singing Chim Chimmery. Um, <laughs> it turns out, after the fullness of, this, of, of our conversation, which I won't elaborate the details too much on, that I'd said fuck twice during the panel discussion. I said it as a means of emphasis, but I did it in front of women who were on the panel, which was pretty heinous, right, you know, women that kind of those flaky creatures that melt at the, at the use of the, the word fuck. Um, and that I ought not swear, because I was in a position as a professor at the LSE that meant that I had to act in a particular way, consistent with the stereotype or narrative that he had told about what a professor at the LSE ought to do. I told him to fuck off, obviously. That was, uh, <laughs> so. But it made me look for evidence on whether swearing is actually a bad thing to do. And you know, that first of all, there's no evidence whatsoever that it's associated with low IQ or lack of intelligence. No such evidence exists. And as a means of emphasis, in discussions like this one, it's engaging and inclusive. So that's an interesting narrative that we use, that some people use when they judge other people when they, when they swear. But it alerted me to the idea that there were then narratives that we had not only about our own behaviour and the lives that we ought to lead for ourselves, but the lives that we think others ought to lead as well. So they were kind of the two stories that are a sort of segue into uh, Happy Ever After. So what I want to do this evening, um, for about the next half an hour or so, <laughs> no, I said or so, is to um, take you through the book and what I'm going to do, since it's an LSE audience, is try to maybe draw on some of the policy discussions and issues that might come out of some of what I have to say, unless maybe on what individuals can do for themselves, by themselves, in order to escape some of these harmful narratives. And what I'm going to do is pay attention to the harmful narratives. And now, it's worth saying, I have to add caveat after caveat, that I'm not suggesting that these narratives are always bad for everybody. That's completely silly. They're sometimes very good for many people. My challenge or question is whether they're good for all of us all of the time, and particularly in the ways that we, and the power that they have over the way that people live. So that's really what I want to do, is kind of draw attention to the consequences of these narratives. Um, I'm not especially interested in the causes. That would be a book in itself. The etiology of these narratives would be an interesting conversation. I'm not, I'm not especially interested in this. I'm just looking at narratives that appear as if they've stood the test of time. 
for social construction reasons, historical accident, evolutionary advantages. There's many reasons why these narratives have come to be. They're very powerful ones and ones that shape and constrain and influence individual behaviour and social policies in ways that are sometimes good, but more interesting for me, sometimes bad. So that's the narrative trap, which was the working title, by the way, of the book, until my editor, who's sitting in the front here, says, you can't have a negative title. Those books don't sell as well. So we had to come up with a new one. I won't, I'll, maybe I'll share with you privately what some of the titles they came up with um, before we, we, we ended up with Happy Ever After. Uh, Penguin did actually choose the subtitle Escaping the Myth of the Perfect Life, which I think is a perfect subtitle for, for the book. And that's what I'm going to try to... Um, give you is how maybe ways in which you could escape the myth of the perfect life and alert you really this is really just a kind of raising awareness of the fact that some of what you do at least might be driven by stories that might not always be in your best interest and that might not always make you happy so I'm going to draw I'm going to draw on happiness data you kind of expect that um, with a with an academic-ish audience um, it's worth you know kind of caveating that a lot of what I have to say is based on correlations um, and not on causation I don't have randomized control trials for many of the things that I'm going to speculate about I'm trying to create a conversation that's what I want to do I'm not going to I do not know that everything I'm saying is established in causal fact um, but I want to create an interesting conversation around some of what we think we know from the correlations largely um, so <clears throat> I have nine Narratives. I'm obviously not going to spend uh, very long on all of them. I'll pick out the ones I think that might be most um, interesting for this audience. And they're in three parts. So three narratives in each of three sections, reaching, related, and responsible. So first of all, then, the cluster of reaching narratives. <sighs> These are narratives of wealth, success, and education. And basically, the, 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 the idea is that you, you can't have enough of them, basically. No matter how wealthy you are, no matter how successful you are, no matter how clever you are, your life will be better if you're wealthier, more successful, and smarter. And so we keep consuming and reaching to accomplish and achieve according to these narratives, often past the point, the evidence tells us, suggests, maximizes our happiness. It is very true, it's absolutely true, and no one should ever think otherwise, that poverty, a complete lack of status, and ignorance and stupidity are bad for happiness. But you don't need very much of those things in order to be happy. Um, now, many of you will know some of the evidence around wealth and its effects, and that's not surprising, I guess, for, for uh, many of you. Um, relative income effects matter considerably too um, and maybe I'm not going to spend very much time in fact no more time than just to say that that's that about wealth um, most of, many of you will know much of that evidence it's not surprising I'll start with that chapter because I want to kind of warm you up a little bit to some of the stories that come later success <clears throat> well maybe I'll spend a, li maybe I'll spend a few minutes on uh, success this is the idea that you should be aspiring for more, a better job, essentially. That's really where success is located in our judgments that we make about ourselves and about others. It's not success measured, measured by the yardstick of kindness or gratitude or pro-sociality, but instead measured by occupational success. So, for example, when we talk about social mobility, we don't actually mean social mobility. We really mean occupational mobility. That's really what we mean. We mean, about, we mean people getting better better paid 
jobs. Well, the associations with status in work and happiness are very weak. Correlationally, you're a hell of a lot happier being a florist or a hairdresser than you are a banker or a lawyer. Actually, that's causal, right? I mean, we, we all know bankers and lawyers. <laughs> we all know bankers and lawyers. Some of us are married to them. I, I'm, I'm not. Some of you might be. Um, uh, and... You know, there are attributes of floristry and hairdressing that lend themselves to being happy. You see the fruits of your labour, you get to engage with people that generally like being with you, you get feedback about what you're doing, you're valued in ways that you experience, in contrast to banking and So I'm not suggesting that, that everyone becomes florists and hairdressers, although looking at some of your hair, you should probably go and see a hairdresser. Um, you, um, but maybe we should try and make banking and floristry uh, sorry, banking and lawyers a little more like the environments that we find in floristry and hairdressing. Uh, but it is an interesting question, at least, that we're getting people to aspire to, to want to achieve more and get jobs that might not actually make them any, any happier when they're in them. But really, the more important point about social mobility, I think, is that it creates an environment in which we disproportionately reward people who attain success and disproportionately punish those that don't and judge very harshly those that don't. Because the myth that gets created is that if one person can be successful from a disadvantaged background, then anybody else can if only they worked harder. And that's just plainly untrue. Well, it's unlikely. The association between your, your, your chances of going from the lowest decile of income to the highest decile of income are exactly the same as a man who's five foot six having a son who's six foot one. It can happen, but it's fucking unlikely. <laughs> but because that one father of five foot six has the six foot one son, all fathers of five foot six can have six foot one sons. Because I've made it from the lowest decile of income to the highest decile. Everyone can. Anyone can if only they worked hard enough. I'm going to talk about effort towards the end. If only they worked harder. What nonsense. Also, it sets up immediately if you're in low status occupations or a low status world, it already tells you that there's something wrong with you. That you ought to be doing something more to get out of your position. And that, by the way, you ought to change when you become successful. Because if you are going to achieve occupational status, you're going to do that in environments that are often very different from the one from which you came. This happens a lot at universities, by the way, as well. Into, I sort of segue between success and education as the two chapters, two and three. You know, LSE, for example, is a, is a brilliant... This is, this is going out. This is being sent out, isn't it? OK. LSE is a brilliant institution. <laughs> That's, that's where it gets edited. That's, that's, that's where it gets edited. I pause for that. I've done some telly. Um, so we're brilliant at widening participation. In fact, we're better at any other, than any other elite university um, at widening participation, at getting lower socioeconomic groups into universities. So we take working-class kids from working-class backgrounds, and then we turn them into middle-class graduates. Now, LSE and other institutions are, again, increasingly aware of this challenge, 
But it is a challenge because as a working class kid, I might not want to go to university and mix with these middle class wankers. <laughs> and they're, because they're assuming, they're assuming that I want to be like them. And so basically I have one of two choices once I get to universities other than the LSE. I, I basically either become like them in order to succeed or I leave. Because it's really, really hard to be yourself, your authentic self, insofar as an authentic self exists, in environments that are very different to the one from which you came. So if we are going to talk about mobility, we should at least be trying to do it in ways that allow people to retain their attitudes, values, beliefs and behaviours in those environments. When I, was, uh, do when I was doing the rounds with Happiness by Design, one of the things I talk about in the book is that I don't read novels. Well, my God. I did actually say that at the Hay Festival, I guess that probably wasn't the best place to do it. But, <laughs> but the judgments that were made, you can read the trolling on Guardian Online, um, about an LSE professor that doesn't read novels. I think some people thought they were just books. I do read lots of non-fiction, by the way. Um, was a massive judgment about how I ought to behave in my spare time, by the way, because I don't read novels as part of my job. That's not part of my job. Right? So not only was I being judged by that festival geezer for doing things in my day job that I shouldn't do, I'm now being judged outside of work for not acting in ways that I ought to, consistent with the narrative. Fucking hell. I don't... There are people in the audience I can see who play tennis, right? I don't give a fuck. Play tennis. <laughs> It's a bit of a silly sport, if you ask me, but it's not like I don't really, like, it's not, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. So it's very, you know, it's really hard and it becomes really pernicious. It's, you know, we can observe and it's absolutely right that we care about discrimination on all sorts of levels in all sorts of ways gender, race, disability, age. We have legislation that stops us, dis, you know, do, um, treating people from those other groups differently. We have no legislation about class. You can treat working class people, lower social class people in, the, in that status hierarchy as you like without any recourse to law. I think that's the problem. The other thing about social mobility is that, it's, as I said, it's never about social mobility, it's about occupational mobility. And we are going to need, we're always going to need low skilled jobs. Someone needs to be teaching assistants, care assistants, cleaners, labourers. The engines of economic growth depend on these jobs. So instead of saying education is the root out of poverty, which for the one in a thousand people it is, let's say respect and decent wages for the other 999 is a root out of poverty. Let's afford people in lower status jobs the status that their jobs deserve. So I think it's so, that myth of mobility, when people talk about social mobility, just I think I would like us to be a little bit more circumspect about its advantages. And that obviously plays into a lot of our policy discussions. All right, happy? <laughs> Good. Don't actually care. Um, <laughs> right. So, let's do part two, related. <sighs> to become a fully-fledged grown-up, you need to do a number of things. Make sure I've... Uh... 
you need to get married. Ideally, be monogamous and have kids. And if you don't, you're not really grown up yet, right? You've not ticked off the boxes of the things that you need to tick off in order to be a fully-fledged grown-up. Well, what, are the evidence, what does the evidence tell us about those things? Again, I'd love to do randomised controlled trials. Let's allocate people to being married. Let's allocate people to being single. Let's foist children on half the population but not on the other. And then look at the treatment effect. That would be brilliant. Maybe, maybe, maybe one day governments will let us do that. Um, at the moment, we don't have those data. What we do have is some interesting associations. With marriage, we observe some gender differences. I said this a few times this last week, which has picked up a lot of interest in the uh, press. The happiest and healthiest population subgroups, it seems, particularly with the longest life expectancies, are women who have never married and never had children. I know, but there's something wrong with them, isn't there? <laughs> I mean, bless, you know. Maybe, maybe one day they'll meet the right guy and that'll all change. No, they're doing fine. They're doing fine without men. Because men have a lot to gain from marriage. We basically stop acting like idiots, calm down a little bit, stop taking so many risks, and live a bit longer. All women have to do is put up with the idiot. <laughs> so it's very interesting, isn't it, I think, that the narrative is more, more powerful for women, I think, than it is for men about getting married. You know, if you're 40 and single as a man, it's kind of, you know, that can be quite cool. Seen as such. Um, but not if you're a woman. Single people are judged really harshly as well by others. If you present a vignette to people, Amanda Henwood, who's in the audience, was one of the principal was the principal researcher on on the uh, book. And so, thank you for much of what I'm going to say about the evidence. Kate Laffin's here, and Laura Kudrin too. They also basically did it all. Um, and. Uh, if you present vignettes to people that give information about the characteristics of people and add in whether they're married, single but trying to find somebody, or single by choice, the, the group that's judged to be the least happy, the least virtuous, the least good, are the single people through choice. There's something wrong with them. I don't like them very much. Now, interestingly, I might not like them very much because I don't like them, because I think they ought to conform with what I think they ought to, according to some you know, expectations. But, but perhaps also I find this very interesting, that I might not like them because I'd really like to be like them. And I can't free myself of the narrative. So when you, if you, in a study that looked at homophobia... If you separate the population, basically, into, this is men, into two groups, the more homophobic and the less homophobic, based on answers to survey questions, and then show them gay porn, you get more arousal measured by penile blood flow in the homophobic group. Because there'll be a lot of gay men in that group who can't be gay because the church or society or their parents and expectations don't allow them to be. So it's interesting sometimes when we judge other people for being different to how we think they ought to, maybe a little bit of it sometimes is because we would actually really be, want to be like them. Uh, now, monogamy. 
Uh, shall I do this? Yeah, okay, I can do this. Right, so um, can, I'll do it with the men because it's easier. Can you look at, take your right hand, just look at your right hand. Now you've got two important fingers on your right hand that, for me tonight. Um, you have your index finger, so your pointy, is that your, the pointy one? Is that the index finger, the pointy one? You have your pointy finger and you have your ring finger. Okay? We need to look at the relative lengths of those two fingers. And I want you to put your hand up if your pointy finger is at least as long as or longer than your ring finger. Okay? Can you put your hand up if your pointy finger is at least as long as or longer than your ring finger? Okay. Put your hands up, please, so, so that I can see them. Right, now, can the women in the audience please look at those men with their hands up? <laughs> They're the men you should marry. <laughs> now, don't, don't, don't shoot the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger, right? This is... This is this is what our latest evolutionary theories tell us. Now, first thing to say is that the, the ratio... This is not deterministic, by the way, entirely deterministic. <laughs> there is a huge stochastic component to this, right? OK, this is not deterministic. This is not deterministic. But the, um, your exposure to testosterone in the womb, in vitro testosterone, um, is represented in the ratio between the length of those two fingers. Those men who put their hands up were exposed, on average, to less testosterone in the womb than those who didn't put their hands up. In vitro testosterone, measured by the 2D, 4D ratio, Matteo Galizzi is in the audience, he's been doing some stuff on 2D, 4D as well, um, uh, is, a, is a good predictor of uh, risk attitude, time preferences, and sociosexual behaviours. So the, the number of sexual partners you have, the degree to which you think sex outside marriage is wrong, or bad, you know, all these things is very correlated with that 2D, 4D ratio. Now, the latest evolutionary theory is really interesting, suggests that it's not normally distributed across the population, but it's bimodal, that basically men sort into, and this is actually the language used in the paper, cads and dads. So you have about 50, we have about 57% of people in the audience, if you were a general population sample, um, that are cads, and about 43% that are dads. Right, it's not deterministic, right? Just stick with me, I'm not, you know, I just keep adding caveats for LSE academics, right? Now, what's interesting are the women. Of course, you generally have less testosterone, so it's not the absolute lengths that matter. Um, the data suggest that women salt in proportion of about 53%, and this is my language, not theirs, mothers, and 47% lovers. That is, that nearly half of women are more inclined to more sexual activity than our narratives would suggest. And actually, that's genetically advantageous for evolutionary reasons because you have genetic diversity in your offspring. So basically, a lover marries a dad, has a kid with him, goes off and has sex with a cad, and gets the dad to bring up the cad's kid as if it's his. Just make sure they look similar. 
ideally the same colour. <laughs> that would make it less, e- less hard to get caught. Um, but it's interesting, because men would obviously... It, it's, it, that, we don't like that, cads or dads, because we if we want to invest resources in our offspring, we, we, we would ideally, of course, want to know that they're ours. So we need to restrain and constrain the sexual behaviours of women in order for that to happen. And so we construct narratives like, my wife doesn't want to have sex with me anymore. That sentence should be, my wife doesn't want to have sex with me anymore. (laughs) But she does with other men. (laughs) About a quarter of the people on Tinder are in relationships. Nearly all of the women on Tinder in relationships go on there to have sex. Interesting, only about half of the men do, right? So, half, so the other half are on there for affirmation reasons to boost their egos and whatever. Now, I don't know what you want to make of that, but 80% of people, 90% of people, I think, these numbers don't really change very much. Between 80 and 90, 90% of people say that infidelity is morally unacceptable. Those numbers remain unchanged. Our judgments of people who behave in ways that we observe, in fact, in real behaviours, are quite different to what we expect them to, to act like. Now, again, you, you, can, you can make of that what you will. Um, in fact, maybe I'll just say you can make of that what you will. If you want to pick up on any of that afterwards, you can. In the, in the interest of time, I shall, I shall, I shall move on. Um, children. Well, they don't, they don't make you happy, do they? I mean, that's, that's pretty fucking obvious, right? So I don't, I don't need to say very much about that. Moments of joy interspersed with long periods of anxiety, worry, and stress. When I, when I, when I made this point more, more elaborately and eloquently than that in uh, Happiness by Design, my God, the, like, the, the vitriol I got. Feel sorry for the kids. He's a bad dad. What, saying what every other parent knows to be true. Right? But interesting, you can't say that because we have to buy into the myth to some large degree that our kids are unadulterated joy. And that sets up false expectations for people that go into parenthood. <laughs> because I'm not enjoying my kids when, I was, when they were younger. They're 10 and 9 now, I absolutely love them to bits. I've probably got about another couple of years before they turn into teenagers um, and, and get horrible again. But, but, but for, for now, it's a really nice time. It's a, it's a real sweet spot. But they don't always bring you play. And just like, we need to be a bit more honest, at least. If we're not going to break free of these narratives, at least be a bit more honest about the impact that they might be having on us. So that's, uh, that's kids. But people who don't have children are a bit weird, aren't they? You know, who choose not to. They're even seen as being selfish, which is fucking weird. Do you know, if you engage in six environmentally friendly behaviours that would be considered to be really environmentally friendly, like halving the number of miles you drive each year, half a dozen of similar behaviours, you would offset about 500 tonnes of CO2. If you have one less kid, 10,000 tonnes of CO2. (laughs) Where in the discussion about children is that bit of the conversation. I think we've got a bit of a problem with the planet warming up a bit. The childless people are the really selfless ones, because they're saving the planet for the people that have them. (laughs) And if you want to talk about selflessness and selfishness, nearly half of charities are started by people who do not have kids. Parents are selfish. 
They're narcissistic. Bringing up their own children, their own offspring. You know, sending pictures around at work of their ugly newborn baby. <laughs> I've never seen anybody send around a picture of their adopted child. Because that's sort of like second best, isn't it? When you can't have your own. Actually, from a social welfare point of view, it's optimal because that kid's going to do the 10,000 tonnes of CO2. So at least, you'll be, at least you won't be adding to it and potentially, of course we don't know the counterfactual, improving someone's life that otherwise wouldn't. All right, let's move on to part three, responsible. Because I think this is where some of the, the really important policy questions might emerge. The judgments that we make about people and the expectations that we have on them based largely on intentions, not on consequences. And I talk initially about um, altruism. The idea that at least some of what we do should be motivated by entirely selfless intent. Pure altruism. It's like a self-flagellation. You have to help other people, but you can't benefit yourself because that would be selfish. Well, in fact, the evidence suggests that there's an enormous amount of benefit that comes from helping other people. Even if you just walk a little bit taller yourself, even if you just feel a little bit better about yourself, you don't broadcast it from the rooftops. If we celebrated that much more, if we drew more attention to that, we would get more pro-sociality. Helping yourself to... It feels good to do good. Helping yourself to help other people, massive benefit. We've got to hide it under a bushel, haven't we? Like David Beckham. You all familiar with, with him? You know who he is? Not disappeared too much into the academic ivory towers that you don't know who David Beckham is? All right. So, you do know, maybe some of you know, that his emails got hacked. Do you know about this? Anyone know about this? No? Okay, no. So, David Beckham's emails to his agent, I think it was agent, got hacked a couple of years ago. As in time I was writing the book. This is like, brilliant. I'm working on this chapter. And I'm thinking about how, why we care about intent and we should be looking at consequences. And this comes up about David Beckham. So David Beckham sent some rather colourfully uh, worded emails to his agent about not being appreciated by the Honours Committee. Yeah? You've seen this? About how um, it was a fucking joke, quote unquote, that he hadn't been given a knighthood. Uh, and some other words besides. And because of all he'd done for UNICEF. Now, Piers Morgan, well, it's kind of in it already, isn't it? Piers Morgan and others take it on themselves to then say that all that David Beckham has done is now undermined by the fact that he might now quite like a knighthood. Now, I don't think David Beckham actually did the work for UNICEF that he does an incredible amount of work for, right? You, you've heard all this, you know? Beckham 7 is a charity that he set up. All of his salary at Paris Saint-Germain went into Beckham 7 charity. There is no doubt that David Beckham has changed thousands of children's lives in ways that wouldn't have happened had he not done that. But somehow it's all undermined. Well, I'll tell you what, go and find those kids whose life he's changed and say to them, listen, Beckham now wants a knighthood, give us the money back. So fuck off. He's, he's unequivocally done good. Then why judge him for a little bit of selfish motivation after the fact? Well, why indeed? It's 
So as I say in the book, if anyone has the ear of anyone in the honours panel, whatever it is, committee, give Golden Balls his fucking knighthood. Because otherwise we're just not going to get more pro-sociality if we just keep castigating people who don't pretend as if it's all selfless. All right, health. I skate over that quite quickly. We have narratives around how people ought to live lives that maximise their health and their length of life. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you. Well, there's something wrong with all of us, because we've all made trade-offs for our health for other things that we care about. The question is not whether we make those trade-offs, it's the question is whether they're optimal in some substantive sense. No idea how we'd ever know that. But we do judge people, and this is, there's a massive class effect here. We judge people from lower social classes whose health behaviours are not quite as we expect them to be in ways that make them personally responsible and stupid. And with life expectancy, this is a really important point for policy, we try, wherever possible, to extend lives by hope. We have this idea of hope. When you get cancer and you're told you have a terminal illness, you're not allowed to accept it. Acceptance is defeatism. It's giving up. You've got to fight cancer. We use terms when people die like they've lost their fight against cancer. We don't say they spent the last six months of their life having really good palliative care, accepting that they're going to die. We waste billions of pounds across the globe, millions and billions in the UK, on end-of-life care, trying to screw a last few weeks out of someone's life when we should instead be offering very effective palliative care. It's a massive narrative that creates huge waste of resources. Right, final narrative. I don't want to end on death. I'm going to talk about volition. And I think this is really interesting. Hopefully this will kind of create a conversation about some of policy um, applications and interventions. We like to believe that we choose stuff, that we have free will, that our desires and our ability to act upon them are somehow volitional. <sighs> what nonsense. I mean... Over the last 50 years, it's become increasingly clear from a litany of evidence that that wiggle room for free will is tiny, if it exists at all. Once you account for genes, environments, context and randomness, there's not a lot left. There's not a lot left. Genes. I recommend a book by Robert Plowman, another Penguin author. Got a plug in there. Um, <laughs> 50% of educational attainment of the variance in educational attainment explained by genes, about 20% is um, explained by schools. People are fucking obsessed by getting their kids into the right schools, less worried about whether they have the right genes. <laughs> Which you do have a little bit of control over, maybe, insofar as you choose your partners wisely. Or stupidly. <laughs> Environments. Envi you know, with this, again speaks to this, this point about we think that anybody can make it if only they work hard. So we'll, we'll wrap up on effort. But it's hard. And, it's, and, and to some large degree, almost impossible. You know, you can't, it's really hard to have a six-foot-one son if you're five-foot-six. Can happen, but it's unlikely. 
context. I talk a lot about, and actually in the in the introduction, Julia talked about this. I have some of my EMSC, our, our my EMSC students, our executive masters students in the room. They have heard me and and other students bore them to death with context matters. Two words that come out of my mouth more than any other when I'm teaching. Um, because context matters. We're driven by environments and situations. I'm not going to go into that. Let's, think, let's, finish, let's talk about randomness. Let's talk about randomness. When I was doing the rounds with Happiness by Design, people are asking me, oh, how did you become a professor at the LSE? Right? Because it's a bit weird. And I just said I was clever and lucky. Yeah, but you must have worked hard. Yeah, maybe. Um, I'm not sure I chose that. I'm not sure I chose to work hard. But the randomness bit, let's stick to that for a moment. We hate it as an explanation. It has no agency. It has no agency. It has no control. We have no, we have no ownership of randomness. If we want our stories to cohere, if we want the narratives to make sense, they have to have structure. They have to have agency. They have to have coherence. And randomness drives the coach and horses through all of that. So people start doing research on successful people. And they say, what makes someone successful? They're tenacious, they go their own way, they don't listen to advice, they know their own mind. Then someone thinks, why don't we look at unsuccessful people? Oh, they show exactly the same characteristics. They're tenacious, they know their own mind, they go their own way, they don't listen to advice. What makes a successful person different from an unsuccessful one is luck. But we don't like it. If you allocate cards in a Monopoly game, before the game, and you basically give someone all of the good cards the part lanes and the Mayfairs and whatever, and you give someone else all the shit ones, like Elephant and Castle, <laughs> um, which actually is a shit, I don't know, it, it's, not, it's, a, it's an up-and-coming area, um, <laughs> then you win because you've got the best cards allocated to you at the beginning of the game. Everyone knows that. You knew it when you started, but afterwards, that's not why you won. You won because you knew when to put the hotels on. You've taken ownership of your randomness. You've made your own luck. What a stupid... But you, can't make, you can't make your own randomness. But we try and appropriate it. Now, actually, as individuals, that's a good thing. It can be motivating. It can make us feel better, because we know from the happiness literature, autonomy and control is very highly associated with happiness. Delusion is a really good part of happiness. Delude yourself that you have free will. But don't delude yourself that other people do. Because then you have a very unjust and unfair and unequal society. Because then you construct the narrative, and this is where I'm going to conclude on the effort point. We say that our successes are driven by talent, which most people do kind of think as being something that is determined in some way and effort which you have control over. But that's a story. That is a story. There is no evidence that I'm aware of that we found looking for the, in, in the book that categorically shows that effort is something more endogenous than talent. My ability to work hard and put effort into my academic career is not something I don't think that I chose it was something that I was able to do, based upon gene, environment, combination, and randomness. A huge amount of luck. When you look at, um, this is in a Dutch study, you look, at, you look at men's ability to work hard, 
is determined in considerable part by the quality of the relationship they have with their parents and whether their parents had a good work ethic. We always talk about effort as being something that we choose. And what it does is it means that when we work hard and put in effort, we can judge people badly that don't. And we can justify and accept gross inequalities in society exactly on that basis. I think that's harmful. I think that's a harmful narrative. And instead, we should be thinking much, much more about the consequences, always the consequences of actions at the individual level and at the social level for the happiness of ourselves and those that we care about. And if that's, a narr if that's the narrative, then I'm pretty happy with that. That might lead you to be rich, successful and clever. It might not. It might lead you to be married, monogamous and have children. It might not. But whatever it allows you to do, get off anyone else's back. Get off everyone else's back. Leave them alone. Because it's all right to accept difference. The world will keep turning and we might be a little bit fairer and more circumspect as a result. Thank you very much. So, when he sits down. Can I go? Yeah. No. Uh. You can sit. <laughs> um, so, Paul, <clears throat> thank you. And before we open it up to, to Q&A, and I know there will be a number, I'm going to ask Tally first to, um, for some reactions and responses and questions for you. Um, thank you. <laughs> Love the book. <laughs> Go get it. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, my, my first question is whether it's possible that um, the narrative, which is that we make decisions in order to make ourselves happy, is a myth in and of itself. That, in fact, our decisions are not um, supposed to optimize happiness at all. Um, and if that is the case, maybe our decisions are perfectly fine. Um, and I was thinking about that when I was reading your book. Um, thinking about the decision, my decision to get married, to have kids, to work more, none of them, none of those decisions were trying to optimize my happiness. I was trying to optimize other things. So maybe that narrative is, is a myth. should include another chapter. <laughs> Why don't you start with an easy question? <laughs> <laughs> Whose idea was it to have you here anyway? I don't know why we, why we did that. Um, it's an excellent one. Right, next one. <laughs> so, so, I mean, let's start, let's start with, let, let me answer, this is what, they do in politics, isn't it? Let me, let, let, that's an interesting question. Let me answer no, a different one. Um, no, let, me answer, let me answer the question in a, in, in, by appealing to misery rather than to happiness. I don't think there's, there, are, there are many people, unless they're pathological, that actively do things safe in the knowledge that they're going to be less happy as a result of it. I mean, there, there might be. I mean, I'm sure um, there, 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 are, are, there are limiting examples. But by and large, most people doing things, sometimes mistakenly, because it's going to make them and those that they care about, it's important that we take account of the people that we care about, are going to make them feel better. If you knew for sure something was going to make you less happy, I doubt very much whether you would do it. Now, it's, it is also true that we don't, you know, we're not going to be happy if we're pursuing happiness and paying attention to whether things make us happy. You know, if you listen to music and you're thinking about how happy it makes you, you enjoy it less than if you enjoy the music. So, so it will be about finding things that are potentially narratives or whatever else or other things that are rules of thumb that we live by that will, be, that will lead to happiness, even if we're not paying attention to happiness itself. 
But if they don't lead to happiness for you or those that you care about, it's pathological, it seems to me. It would be pathological to do that. So find things that you feel good doing that make you feel good without paying attention to how good they make you feel. And then, um, so the second question is related, which is in terms of policy, government policy, should we actually try to maximize happiness? So is that what <coughs> you know, policy should be doing? Or maybe there's other things that we're trying to maximize survival of our species, yeah. uh, which goes above. Yeah, well, survival probably does come... But then, even then, you know, I mean, survival of our species is, is, is clearly important. <laughs> um, uh, You've heard it here it, first. There's, yeah, 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 yeah. That's fucking profound, isn't it, really? I mean, I don't know. That's worth the entrance fee, which was free, uh, alone. But survival in misery is not... I'm not sure that's that, that's that exciting. Um, you know, survival in pain... Knowing that we're going to be in pain is, again, probably not that enticing. So survival, yes, but survival motivated out of improving things. And look, I know that people will care about all sorts of other things in their lives and in policy, but unless it shows up somewhere at some point in someone leading a better life as they report it for themselves, it's questionable whether it's worth it. We just keep going on, this, like that, that self-flagellation, the flagellation of other people, saying, well, this is good for you, this is really good for you, yeah, but, but, but I don't feel like it. Well, no, trust me, it is. It's an incredibly paternalistic approach. And it's interesting that people will often talk about happiness as a paternalistic thing. I'm not paternalistic in that sense. I want to find what the evidence tells us, insofar as it's possible, and then guide policies in ways that will reduce misery. That's really what I'm interested in. I want to reduce suffering by as much as possible. Real suffering of real people in the real world. Um, and the last kind of related question would be, so, so thinking about the story of your friend who suffers every day from commuting and so on and so on and then says she loves her work. Yeah, she's um, changed her job, by the way, since and, Oh, has she? She has, yeah. Does she love her work now? Probably not. Um, no, she's, uh, she's in Australia. <laughs> she had to get away from me in her ear about her job. No, but she did, but she did change her job. Because um, so it's a book that makes you quit your job, as happens by design, so... Work. Right. Actually, it's related to that. So, so there, and, and you know, your, your, your research talks a lot about life satisfaction versus momentary happiness. Mm. And you know, perhaps her choice, well, now she left, but if she was to remain, um, perhaps her choice was to try to enhance her life satisfaction yeah. and not her momentary happiness. And how does that kind of theory come into your book now and what you're saying? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, so I've, I, I've used life satisfaction data in, in the book because that's what we have most on. Um, I'd ideally want to be using much more data on experiences of how people feel moment to moment and day to day. And because it is part of this, you know, so if, if married people report high levels of life satisfaction, <coughs> is it that they feel happier and better in whatever way we might otherwise measure it? Or is it because they've accomplished something that they've expected to achieve? Um, and so when, when we find data that actually doesn't support, when life satisfaction data don't support the narrative, then I think we've got a really compelling case for taking it seriously. So, for example, when, when marriage doesn't show up very much, very strongly for women in life satisfaction or experience data, then I think we've got a more compelling case for at least asking the question about whether it's just a, 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 you know, such an amazing thing for people to do. Okay, I'm going to open it up now for questions. Um, I know there's, there's probably going to be an awful lot of questions, um, so I'm just going to take them in, in groups of three, really, rather oh, than just okay. one at a time. 
uh, to enable more questions to, to come in. So if I can just ask you, there are roving mics around, um, and it is quite important that you speak into the mic for the question so that we can pick it up on, on the recording and we can hear what you're saying. So if I could just have a flurry of hands to start off with, and I'll just, uh, so I've got person in the grey jumper on the top level there for the first question. Um, I'll do the top level first. Person in the middle in check shirt with hand waving. And then person at the front here in grey. So this is my, my description is for the roving mics, actually, uh, with glasses and a black shirt. So that's my top level, first of all. Don't worry, I'll come down to the, to the stalls, okay, for the next <laughs> round. So if you could kick off with your first question. Thank you. Hello, Professor Dolan. And, Hello, uh, where are we? Oh, oh hi. Sorry. It's yeah. been a very interesting presentation. So basically, uh, what I understood that sometimes there is a kind of challenge between the narrative and the research for happiness. And, uh, but in your book, I didn't read your book, but I'm curious to read, but uh, I want to ask That's you right, that. It's on sale, I'll, I'll sign it for you. <laughs> uh, what's about if someone uh, in, in, his, in his research for happiness, he doesn't have the opportunity to get out from the narrative? Uh, I don't know, basically, ev everyone, you, you choose basically, you, can I say, you have evidence that sometimes happiness is not uh, what the narrative say. But yeah. sometimes people that they want to be happier, they don't have a chance to go out of a narrative. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so thank you. So, um, yeah. um, next thank you very much, first of all. I'm here. Oh, okay. hi. Hi. Uh, my question is short but complicated. What do you think is the best way to measure happiness? Okay. Excellent, thank you very much. And then I was just. My answer will be short and complicated. Okay. <laughs> uh, but context will matter. Long and um, simple. <laughs> and then, yes. Hi, um, thank you, Professor Dolan. So, first of all, thank you all for the fucking brilliant talk. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, well some, report, some articles said that people who speak swear words are tend to be more genuine. Yeah. Um, so my question is, you, pi you picture out quite a dark and dim pictures of us. Um, and the public. So how can we overcome and understand ourselves better? And doing that, how can we better accept our laziness, stupidity in making decisions, and procrastination, etc.? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Excellent. Good range of questions. <laughs> <clears throat> so can I? Any order? Yeah, maybe I'll do these. Maybe I'll do these and try to appeal to these at a more of a policy, social, like social policy level, um, uh, uh, and see whether that might work. Um, once a narrative gets created, it was very difficult to then rein it in. I talk. I talk in the chapter on wealthy. I didn't go into this in any more detail around home ownership. Right. So it's now become expected and accepted that people will buy their own homes. About nine out of ten people say it's one of the most important things that they want to do. About 60% of people own their own homes in the UK. So you've already got a 30% difference in home ownership rates. When I grew up, I grew up in social housing. Um, my parents and grandparents and all of my family's always been in social housing. Um, my, by the way, my nan and granddad had a, had a masonette that was a council place on London Fields in Hackney that they never bought. Escape the narrative. They should have. Escape they should have bought the into the narrative. They should have <laughs> bought into the narrative. 
they should have bought into the narrative. But, but, that, but home ownership wasn't, wasn't something that was, 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 was expected. And we have a narrative now that it's all very terrible for millennials who can't buy their own homes. But, 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 but actually, maybe some of the conversations should return, or at least think about whether that's a good story or not. You know, rather, rather than only thinking about whether we build more homes, offer incentives for people to buy them. Because the evidence on home ownership and happiness is very, very weak. Actually, what, what really matters is if you buy a home and no one else does. About half of the benefits that come from home ownership come from, uh, come from that, you know, the fact that you have status compared to your uh, friends. Um, so it sort of creates a bit of an arms race. So, so the only for opportunity to escape the narrative requires us to have a conversation at the policy level to help people do so. Because for any one individual to swim against the tide is going to be very, very, very hard for them to do that. Um, measuring happiness, I, I, I've long argued that we should, in the very least, be accounting for how people feel day-to-day, moment-to-moment, with pleasure and purpose. The subtitle of happiness by design is finding pleasure and purpose in everyday life. I think I make a compelling case for why that's important. To, at, in the very least, sit alongside the life satisfaction measures, which do contain a considerable degree of story, insofar as people are answering those questions as we ask them. Um, and then, um, understand, so there's a, um, a geeky behavioural science joke uh, about a couple that have sex, and one says to the other, I know how that was for you, how was it for me? Because we're not particularly good witnesses to our behaviour. That's what a lot of the evidence tells us, or, or indeed sometimes to how we feel. And so I think that's why sometimes it's important to rely on other people to give us that guidance and judgment. I have some data in the book that Amanda and Laura generated that's uh, uh, asking people about essentially whether they would w- want to live a life according to the narrative or be happy. And considerable numbers of people say they'd rather live according to the narrative than to be happy. But when they're giving advice to a friend, they want them to be happy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, it could be that they then can benefit from being successful while the other person's happy, but... <laughs> Um, it's most likely that they would like their friends not to be constrained in the ways that they are. Um, And so I think the best insight into ourselves will come from other people that know us. Okay. Uh, Next round of questions. Uh, So this person at the back, you are very quick with your hand up, um, just in front of the camera. Another one just to the left there. And... How many women... Uh, and present back with the glasses, with a white jumper. Okay, that's... Uh, first of all, thank you for the talk. Uh, I would like to make two points. The first of which being, could you see society as a self-preserving uh, thing? So essentially, the crass narratives could be explained by the evolutionary development of society in the sense that people who have no kids lead to society dying out. The illusion of monogamy keep social peace. So it's the survival of the fittest narrative, if yep. you say. Okay. Yeah. Uh, hi, can you hear me? Um, I wanted to ask, is the British public school system, and as a bit of an adjunct to that, the good state comprehensives, which are just supported by very high property prices in this country, is that just another method of cheating at monopoly? Yeah. Or well, yes. <laughs> That's a short and simple answer. Um, I was going to ask a quite similar question um, about cads and dads and lovers and mothers. Yeah. Given the 
availability of effective contraception in the last couple of generations. Do you yeah. know of any research that suggests like the relative frequencies of these genes is changing? Like maybe the, mm. the people who choose not good to have question. children, it's the same kind of thing. It's a good question. Um, so on that one, uh, on that one uh, Joel Suss, who's, a, who's one of my PhD students, uh, drew my attention to the, to the paper and I got very excited about, about the evidence um, presented in that you'd need to speak to a geneticist or to a evolutionary theorist to get a better sense of, of, of the answer to that question. Um, cheating at monopoly uh, uh, point, I think it's really interesting. The value added of schools is very little. About, I don't know, 3% or no, about 7% of the variance or something you know, explained uh, 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 um, by uh, schools, you know, um, 20% at most. And Yet people are obsessed now with getting their kids into the right schools. Basically, the good, sco the good schools, good, you know, high-status schools that churn out people with lots of qualifications, take the best kids to begin with. And the schools then add very little value themse them themselves. But we're measuring those successes in terms of attainment, aren't we? That's, that's what we're doing. Um, and the propensity to send those children on to elite institutions... You know, we have a massive discussion at the moment about education and, and the, you know, quite rightly a massive discussion about the funding of higher education, focusing only in that conversation on the 50% of people that go to university. Very little discussion of the half that don't. I'm interested in the half that don't, and I'm interested in maybe whether the half should go, whether we might have more respect for apprenticeships and vocational training than we currently do, and maybe people might not feel the need to go to universities that, in many cases, make them miserable and that don't lead them to, 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 to any you know, greater um, success at the, at the end of it. So um, it's really difficult, though, for individuals, again, to kind of break free when the systems are set up in ways to encourage them to buy into those narratives and stories. Um, and, you know, maybe that, again, as in so many areas... Needs, leads us and needs us to have regulation and legislation rather than expecting individuals to break free for themselves. Um, the social, it's, a, it's an interesting question. You know, there, there will be, for many of those narratives, for many people, good reason why they will be socially advantageous. But even, in, even as researchers, we need to be a bit careful about whether we're buying into narratives. Right? So we talk about universities as being good, for, not just for individuals, but for society. And Lots of evidence suggests, for example, that you know, more universities leads to increased economic growth. Actually, work carried out by academics at the LSE. But not very much discussion, really, about what the counterfactual would be if those resources were used in other ways to create growth, um, and maybe the kinds of growth that might not be damaging to the environment and to the planet. And so we need to be very careful about whether what, even the evidence that we bring to some of these questions is, is tainted and tinted by our own lenses through which we look at it. Um, you know, there is certainly no, I don't think there's any doubt that, that, that status is beneficial to individuals and to society. We, 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 get, we get better mates and, and we're seen as better people when we have success. But we don't have to measure success only in the same ways and narrow ways in which we measure it currently. We don't have to have wealth and income and material consumption as our yardstick by which, which we judge whether people are successful or not. If you type into Google the world's richest person, you get... One day it's Bill Gates, the next day it's Jeff Bezos. Um, very easy to find the answer to that question. If you type into Google, who pays the most taxes, you get tax avoidance and evasion schemes, 
and you get which countries have the highest tax rates as if that's a bad thing. There's no, there's no celebration. I, I, did, um, I was on a, a judging panel of an alternative rich list that sits inside the Sunday Times rich list. The Sunday Times rich list is this big with all these people who have made all this money appropriated in sometimes dodgy ways and often being very lucky and not very clever and an alternative rich list in the middle of people who do lots of good things that's kind of hidden away. Um, you could easily, we could easily flip those two things around and, and encourage success and status to be driven by things that are beneficial to individuals and to wider society. So, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, okay. that's, that's the three, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, so, first, <coughs> so um, next question round. Uh, so I've got... Where are you going? Uh, so where am I going? Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I've got two, I think I've probably got two rounds left, so I'll go back up to the, back up to the circle. So right at the back, uh, person right at the back, waving, hand, marvellous. Uh, and then person in the corner there, <coughs> just over there, and then one from over here, person at the front. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah, hello. Hi. Great talk. Thank you so much. Um, and I agree with you about the sort of how these narratives have become so ossified, they're very hard to deconstruct. So my question to you, and perhaps this is beyond the remit of the book, is how do we even begin to do that? How does one begin to deconstruct those narratives, whether from a public policy perspective or any other way? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And then, so, sorry, if you could just wave your hand, that's brilliant. Thank you. So the okay. microphone can make its way down it. to you. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Hi. Thanks. I'm, I'm just visiting from the States, and I just came for this talk. Excellent. Totally. Um, the, so I do research on transport and housing economics, and I was really excited to hear you talk about home ownership, but I'm really interested in like the addition of that, which is that people are so driven to get very, very far out of the city so that they can own a home in competitive housing markets like yeah. London. And that means they get a longer commute, which is one thing that we absolutely know makes people more unhappy. Yep. Um, and also is socially bad, right? Like cars and traffic are socially bad, um, like car pollution is. And we also have a lot of evidence that biking and walking commutes uh, make people happier. So I'm really curious about like how we shift the narrative around that related to the bid rent function. Okay, thank okay. you. And incompatible narratives as well. <laughs> Hi, um, thank you, and I echo with the rest. Thanks for the talk, actually. And I wanted to dig deeper on one of the earliest narratives that you mm -hmm. were talking about, which is success. I mean, yep. it's been repeated over and over over the talk, which I wanted to mention, um, what if we need to redefine success in, yep. in society? Um, yep. the, the, the idea that success is a better job, you, you mentioned it under the context of occupational success, um, but I was wondering uh, what your thoughts are around uh, redefining success in society and what your definition of success is. Yes, thank you very much. So uh, where was the, the, the deconstructing narratives question? Where was that? Um, I need to be reminded of what that was again. Sorry. How do we deconstruct the narratives? Yeah, so sorry. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So there's only so much you can do in one book. And my editor's already. Well, my editor's already. There's a lot you can do now, Paul, though. All right. <laughs> I didn't even know which fucking department I was in at the beginning. <laughs> Jesus, honestly. Um, 
my editor has already told me what the third book is going to be about. So they just basically they, they just keep keep you publishing until you either die or become unsuccessful, um, and hopefully it'll be death. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll, be, I'll be I'll be I'll be happy. So what I'm trying to do in 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 this book is to is to draw people's attention to the narratives and accept in in any behaviour change therapy of whatever kind, the first step to behaviour change is acceptance. And so this is really the first step of therapy. It's the first step at an individual and at a social level is to kind of alert us to the narratives. And, and look, I'm not trying to change, I'm not, well, I am trying to change the world, but I'm not trying to change any one individual's life. If you, if you, if you read the book and you think that narrative is for me, then, you're, then I'll be more confident that it is for you because you've reflected on it and thought about it and, and um, chosen that way. And it's again, you know, kind of, I haven't made this point maybe uh, strong enough as I would like to. There's, there's no one-size-fits-all approach to life. There's no one-size-fits-all approach to anything. And, and anyone, like these happiness gurus that give you this, like, this is what you should do, um, are clearly stupid because there's, no, because there's no one way of doing it. So it's just alerting us to the fact that some of what we do might be driven by some of these uh, stories. And that becomes, I think, the process of deconstruction. Um, the... Uh, yeah, I mean, the commuting thing is interesting. I had a paper quite a few years ago now, actually, that showed the commuting is most detrimental to women who are married and do have children. It doesn't really affect men that much. It doesn't affect single women quite so much. Because basically, you know, I go home and the housework is done. She goes home and she still has to do the housework. So, so the way that societies are organised kind of make it difficult for commutes to, to, be, to be shared in that sense. Um, it's, it's a difficult, I mean, I, 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 you know, how can, you do, how can any one individual change any of this for, them, for themselves? Which is why, why I appeal again to the kind of social uh, issues. We, we could do much more, should do much more to um, make commuting, you know, easier, more efficient, use public transport more. But at the same time, and this is where I think the, the question in the narratives comes in, at the same time, questioning whether the successful job, and it leads us a nice segue into the question to, da, da, down here about, where, where did it come from? Where was it here about success? Oh, up, up the top, sorry, sorry. We're up, up the top at the front. Um, becomes important because we just, we just buy into this idea that it's a good thing, and the social mobility arguments kind of reinforce that. We just buy into the idea that success is determined by occupation. And, you know, when I, say, when I say really hand on heart, honestly, 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 I am happy, would be happy for my children to be florists and hairdressers, builders, labourers. Probably wouldn't suit my daughter, she's pretty skinny. Um, uh, that, then, then I mean it. And, and, and as long as they, they have rich lives, you can find richness in all sorts of different things. And what's really interesting, I was doing um, a few TV interviews this week, and the TV presenters have all said to me, people constantly asking them, they're at sort of pinnacle of their TV careers, you know, presenting BBC Breakfast or whatever, and people will be asking them what they're doing next. Like, what are you doing next? But why have they got to do something, like, why, why have they got to do something next? Why can't you just enjoy what you're doing? Um, the next could be something where you're doing something more pro-socially, more for society, more for the environment, but not just more, more and more better jobs. So taking up on that next thing, we kind of yeah. talked about it before, that maybe what makes us happy 
is believing that the next thing will make us yeah. happy, right? Yeah. So really, it's a good narrative, not because the outcome makes yeah. us happy, but believing that that outcome will make us happy. Yeah, that's t- that's certainly true, and you can and you can delude yourself about that to some large degree, and it will be good for you. In fact, it will be good for you. Um, the problem is when it comes and it speaks to the commuting and the home ownership. The problem comes when it when it doesn't show up in making you happier because buying into the narrative of owning your home in fact means that you have a miserable commute, which in fact means that you're made less happy by that commute, uh, which in fact means that, that you know, there are moments when you reflect upon whether you've made the right decision, and they become really critical, don't they, as you know. They become really critical in the decision, but they're not critical in the experiences of the decision before, during, and after. And that's part of the challenge, is that we kind of, we, we make a decision based upon the story, imagining how the story is going to make us feel, and then the rest of the time, we're paying attention to people on their mobile phones, on the train, um, or, or you know, what other things that draw attention to themselves in our daily, daily experiences. Actually, we had, I was going to ask you a different question before I do that. I just remembered a conversation that we had about people thinking that vacations will make them happy. Yeah. And in fact, that really does make them happy. Um, yeah, th- think about it. Yeah, it does, yeah. Right, you know, it's, it's a famous um, finding that the happiest day is the day before vacation, not actually yeah. going on vacation. <laughs> yeah. And then um, Paul and I were talking that both of us go on really short vacations because it's not worth it. <laughs> right? You have all the planning and anticipation, and that's great. And then, you know, go for a long weekend and come back, um, especially if you go with kids. Exactly. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's it. Other, other, otherwise, really it's well. just long periods of childcare somewhere else. But, um, um, <laughs> and... And that's right, and it's worth, it's worth saying, because obviously you, you've obviously done lots of <coughs> research in this area, that, that anticipations are experiences. I think that's what we need to, that's what I think people who, who talk about happiness ought to remember and remind themselves, that anticipations are experiences, and memories are experiences too. So when we're looking at whether a vacation, or holiday, as we say in English, makes, makes people... <laughs> makes people um, why is out of offices um, things be? I'm on annual leave. How has that happened? I'm on holiday. So it's all changed. Annual leave. Anyway, um, when uh, when we think about whether the holiday has made somebody happy or not, we don't just look at we don't we shouldn't just look at the actual holiday itself. It's the anticipation, as you rightly point out, Tally, uh, but also the memory of it as well. And actually, this is, this is where it gets really interesting, because some of the best memories we have are for experiences that actually weren't that good, because we've got good stories to tell, right? So you can have a really bad time and then actually then be able to dine out on how horrible it was, <laughs> right? And funny enough, that is a narrative. And that, and that becomes, story, well, it becomes, it becomes our own story. So that's, that's so the important... A story can make us happy. A story, so that's the important... I want to distinguish... That gives me a chance to then distinguish very clearly between the kinds of stories that I'm talking about. I am not... There's a whole load of research probably carried out by some of the people in this room about personal narratives. There's a lot of psychological research on how personal narratives are very good for us. They give our lives coherence. They, give, they, they help us ameliorate the impact of adverse events and so on. I'm not interested in the personal stories i'm interested in the stories that are told to us by other people about how we should behave and that we use to judge other people when they don't behave according to them and that's that's what i'm calling the social narrative the social story for which there's been very little research on which there's been very little research and so can i take from that again we were talking before about the the (coughs) u-shape of happiness yeah so can you put your hand up if you've heard about the u-shape of happiness Okay, so that's basically that happiness is quite high in kids and teenagers, goes down, down, down. 
hits rock bottom in your midlife, but luckily then goes up again, um, and then actually remains high until the last two years of life. And so one thing that kind of occurred to me is that maybe this narrative idea is related to that U-shape of happiness. So, and now you've actually said it better than what I was thinking, that maybe the stories that are told to us change throughout our lifespan, um, and we take those stories and use them to make decisions, and those stories are very different when we're kids than when we are in midlife and then when we are older. Uh, yeah, I think that's a really, I mean, as, as I... As I said to you before, I think that's a really interesting lens through which to look at the U-shape because I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with it being looked at in that way, that, that actually the degree to which this, even you're seeking happiness at those times in your life might change. Um, it does, of course, though, rely on the life satisfaction reports, which then create their own narratives within the narratives that exist across the life course. And when we look at experiential data, pleasure and purpose in daily life, we, we find a much messier pattern. It's not, we don't really get the U-shape. It's kind of, young people report quite low levels of purpose. Younger populations in their 20s, um, which is interesting, uh, um, you know, given that many of them might be in higher education. Um, and we have a sort of messy pattern of different emotions over the life course. So it does depend on which measures you use too. Take some more. Okay, yeah. So we've got, I think, a round for a final round of questions. Well, final round. This is Yeah, good. no, final, final round of questions. <laughs> the lady in the red jacket, um, person in the glasses there, and then um, in the middle. Yeah, you were quick on the mark on your hand. So. so thank you for a brilliant talk. You talked about public policy, and, you know, the government has had some successes with changing narratives, for example, about smoking. Mm. But how, how can you have public policy that changes the narratives of such deep, deep, incalculate, incul can't do it anyway, whatever, um, narratives when there's so little trust in government, in the media, and it's all about fake news? Yes. Oh. Um, hi, Paul. So, Hello, where, where are we? Oh, hi. Um, my question is, I have a lot of friends who have been, are like programmers, AI uh, programmers and stuff, who have decided to buy that the narratives of success they've been fed is wrong, and they chose to quit their job and become a hipster bakery sort of thing. And <laughs> that's what I've noticed a lot, is that when they shatter the narrative that they thought was wrong, they pick up another trendy one that's happening, <laughs> right? And what is it, like, without an actual absolute truth of narratives to go to when there's yeah. nothing left, then you just go to the next one that pops up. Yeah. And, yeah. That's very good. Um, okay, so just in the middle, if you could wave your hand and then the, the people know which, I think the mic's going to come from you from that direction. Hi, Paul. Last question. Got to be profound now, right? It has to be. No, this is going to be the best um, one of all. I just wanted to follow what Professor Sherrod already uh, had alluded to earlier. Uh, what do you think, especially with policy implications of uh, the gross national happiness that they're doing, the approach in Bhutan or something like that? Is that, is that viable and is that something you want to go for with, uh, with the research? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you everybody. These have been uh, challenging questions. I thought I was just coming out for a bit of fun. Um, can governments do it? Probably not on their own, and, and certainly not if they're mistrusted. It's a really difficult 
challenge. I mean, you know, it's, even for me to say as someone who's bought their own house, to say that we should change the narrative about home ownership, that feels a bit like pulling up the ladder, doesn't it? Um, and so that's, you know, that's, that's very difficult. And I can easily, that's a good charge that could be levelled at me. It's, it's very hard not to, not, to, not to face that. I think that we just, you know, we just, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how we change conditions and circumstances of people's lives in ways consistent with stories. We haven't spent very much time at all, if any, thinking about whether the stories can be better aligned with people's conditions and circumstances. And I think that that conversation can take place not just at policy level, uh, not just in households, but on social media too. And that, I haven't mentioned social media. I think it's a good opportunity to say that. By and large, social media has been a force for evil and good, bad than for good. But that doesn't mean that it has to be. It doesn't mean that it, that it should continue to be. And you can identify on social media, one of the good sides of social media is that you can identify lots of other people that might be living the odd life that you're leading. Right? When you lived in small communities, you were the only gay in the village. Um, but, you know, now you can find other people that are like you. And so that does, we, we, if, we, if we use social media differently, it might be an opportunity for us to draw attention to the fact that we don't all have to live according to one preset set of rules. Um, on, the, uh, on the pervasiveness of narratives, it's a good question. I mean, I just, I suppose, you know, look, I mean, lots of academics do research um, in ways that are driven by their own intuitions and instincts and observations. I think that's what I've done in, in my life, I think. It's fine, I've found things interesting that kind of say something to me. I've been really struck by, I mean, I might be deluding myself completely, by the fact that I don't seem to carry those all two selves around in my head very much. At all, really, I don't think. I don't think I've ever done that very much. But like, so many people do, and you see it with so many students at the LSE that come to see me about strategies that they might adopt in order to be successful in whatever direction. That's a weird question for me. I've never, I've never known really how to answer it. Um, and so maybe there's just lots of, maybe there's some individual differences there that we haven't observed and measured in quite the ways that we maybe, maybe now with the book and maybe other conversations, we might start doing that more, that some people are just more story-driven and, and, and others are more experiential. Maybe there's some factors that explain that. Um, but when those friends of yours who ever quit their jobs, and particularly if they take lower-paying ones, it's a harder story to tell. I mean, we have some EMSC students. Is it going to be... Habits by Design was the book that will make you quit your job. Our executive masters will be the masters that will make you quit your job. Um, because people have come onto that programme and quit their jobs. And they have a harder job t telling people you know, why they've done that. There's a justification that needs to go into that that isn't required if you take a job that's higher paid. Um, the gross national happiness, yeah, thank you. It's a really good question. Richard Layard's in the room, and he, he'll know how to answer this question much better than I do. I think when Bhutan first started um, measuring gross national happiness, they didn't actually measure happiness at all. It was measured according to objective conditions of life, like, um, you know, the you know, kind of cultural life and, and all these things that were non-GDP-based. And I think that was the biggest thing that changed. They're now measuring happiness more directly. I think that's important that we do that. But moving away from the idea that, you know, more cars stuck in more traffic jams using more fuel is a good thing. Um, is, a, is clearly absurd, and so therefore anything that moves us away from paying attention to economic growth for its own sake, because progress is measured. Progress, that's what we call that progress. I mean, that's, that's hardly progress. Um, and it's, and it's you know, part of the reason why we're probably in the mess that we're in, and why, well, a positive note to finish on, we're probably heading towards the sixth extension. That's a lovely point Excellent. on which to finish. So. <laughs> so, how to make you happy by Paul Dolan. 
<laughs> but that is, um, that is unfortunately the note on which we will finish because we are now out of time. Can I just ask you to, um, to thank Paul and Tally indeed for a fantastic evening. <laughs>